0: Welcome to The Axis, where we chart the intersections of culture, governance, and philosophy, and explore the space between ideas. Capitalism and Socialism. For some people, there couldn't be two more diametrically opposed ideas. They have more in common than separates them, however. Not in terms of what they stand for, but where they come from. In these next two episodes, I'm going to be discovering and illuminating the differences and the qualities that they share, and the environments from which we have these two very prominent, incontrovertibly, absolutely, staggeringly huge philosophical frameworks by which we look at most of modern society. Uh, It's really interesting because while collectivism, mercantilism, all these other philosophies and concepts predate capitalism and socialism, I would pin the real beginning of uh, both of those economic philosophies to the Industrial Revolution and to the standardization of governments that came from the rise of nationalism and the nation state and the way that international relations uh, shook out after World War I. At the end of the 19th century, the nation state was still kind of in its infancy. But after World War I, things really concreted into the shape we see them today. The League of Nations was essentially the high watermark that began the movement of nearly every government in the world to a state-centric nation. The American Civil War led to greater uh, federal control Uh, This centralization led to a greater sense of national identity. Essentially, the victorious North had this concept uh, that they were justified um, in their uh, reclaiming of the South. Uh, And in a very real way, they were. But at the same time, this led to a stronger federal army, a stronger central government control over uh, military and economic power, and to a greater sense of national identity. And it justified policies and uh, principles like manifest destiny, um, among other uh, imperialist ideals that the United States held at the time. This was also when we saw the end of corporate imperialism, at least of one stripe. The East India Company collapsed into the British Raj. Uh, the banana republics that had surged up in Central America uh, were something altogether different, however. And yet remarkably it echoed the legacy that the East India Company, and maybe more aptly the Dutch West Indies Company uh, that occupied the same space that they did, uh, had uh, once filled in many ways. At the end of the 19th century, American fruit magnates owned two Central American company, countries. Think about that for a second. American corporations that distributed bananas were in charge of the governments of at least two entire countries in South and Central America and owned large swaths of others. They exploited they exploited land ownership laws that ceded land surrounding train tracks to railroad owners to dispossess native persons of the land and to place those people under the control of those corporations as low wage or agricultural workers. Uh, These people were picking bananas for American consumers. This is the beginning of consumerism as a as part of American culture as well. For Americans, bananas picked by low-wage Honduran and Guatemalan workers were cheaper than domestic-grown apples. The cost of two apples in 1939, which was 25 cents, would get you a dozen bananas. Uh, And 25 cents in uh, 1939. $13. I believe I said $39 a moment ago, but $19. $13 is actually more like $6.50 in that ballpark. Uh, So we're talking about quite an expense. And if you're deciding what to buy um, for your household, two apples will not go as far as a dozen bananas. Uh, And so we saw this change in American culture, where bananas were a product that was not just a luxury, but in some sense, very much an essential part of the American diet, providing uh, nutrition and uh, things like that, uh, where it would not be able to be afforded otherwise for some families. The companies that we now know in modern times as Dole and Chiquita owned massive, massive swaths of Central and South American land well into the 20th century. Uh, In 1912, Lee Christmas, uh, so-called General Lee Christmas, overthrew the civil government of Guatemala with a military government of the making of the fruit companies. Um, it was the first of many such juntas that were uh, placed in the region, and this continued well into the 20th century as well. Uh, it, it, for example, in 1954, the CIA carried out Operation Success. Uh, they deposed the democratically elected president of Guatemala, uh, Jacobo Arbenz, on the false princess. Princess, the false princess. Yeah, they uh, they put a princess in place. Of Huckabull. It was tragic. Uh, no, the, on the false pretense, rather, um, that the land that had uh, been returned to the peasants uh, by his government um, for the purposes of enriching the lives of those individuals, uh, that that land had been returned uh, not to, to people who uh, were simple farmers, but rather to communists which of course um, that was uh, a, a four letter word in 1954 uh, during the McCarthy era. Uh, so this corporate abu- abuse that we're seeing in this picture of S- South and Central America was not exclusive to these capitalists sort of uh, adventures and aggressions in other countries. You know, This is not just Americans um, playing dirty on foreign soil. Indeed, as interventions of the U.S. government demonstrate, uh, even as late as 1954, the idea of sovereign government uh, was more of a suggestion than an actual rule to these companies. The idea that the individual person was to govern themselves uh, was basically uh, thrown out the window here. So, The perfect example of this is what they were doing domestically. For five days in September 1921, 10,000 coal miners and 3,000 lawmen and mercenaries fought over the workers' attempts to unionize. This was not just a mere standoff with rifles and um, men sort of shouting back and forth, however. The private army that was raised up by the... um, the mine owners, backed by the state troops, the state troopers from the governor, dropped bombs from planes over the miners' heads. This was a level of violence that they were recreating from World War One on American soil for the purpose of establishing the corporation's rights to control their miners' livelihood, uh, to keep them from unionizing. The state troopers, by the way, the, United, the West Virginia state troopers, were created specifically as a state police force as a result of the governor's need to enforce corporate interests in the state. He specifically created the state police force to stop uh, alleged worker violence um, rather than spending money on social programs to improve those workers' lives and this is not a foreign concept because just a few years later we'll get the the new deal and social reforms will greatly reduce rioting and violence and social unrest so it, the the battle of blair mountain that i've been describing so far was so bad that the U.S. Army had to come in and intervene in the form of the West Virginia uh, National Guard uh, to stop the violence from going any further. By the end, the Battle of Blair Mountain cost one million bullets and the future of the United Mine Workers of America. Thousands of people fled the Union um, and later joined things like the EFL-CIO and the um, Steelworkers uh, Unions. Um, but that sort of Pyrrhic victory that they went through uh, managed to move the labor movement forward. But in the process, thousands of mine workers were jailed. The last one was paroled um, four years later in 1925. So union coal mining went off a cliff after this. Um, Pretty soon it was no longer profitable. And so the capitalists withdrew their money from it as well. Uh, It wouldn't be until um, the social reforms under the New Deal, as I mentioned, that working conditions were to improve at all for, for unionized mine workers because there was no outside social pressure and the, uh, the changes just weren't enforced. So what's my point here? What are you expecting me to say now? That capitalism is evil? No, I don't think it is because the capitalism is merely a description for the system Uh, the economic system, the philosophical system by which capital can be used in a market um, to leverage control over that market. Unchecked corporatism, however, is evil. When the nation state rose to prominence as the normative modus operandi for sovereign government bodies at the beginning of the 20th century, and sort of finalized that process with the League of Nations, it raised up with it the instrument by which capital and therefore capitalism is possible. The reserve banking system is an outstanding innovation. It's the only reason why capitalism exists. An independent bank which can regulate interest rates and buy and sell currency without political meddling is in an ideal world, however, not necessarily in actuality, An instrument for equality. And that's exactly the point, right? In an ideal world, the Reserve Bank would use money to help people and to stabilize the economy for the betterment of all of the people who are in it. But the problem is, of course, that we don't live in an ideal world, and that's not how it goes. The money that is lent from the Federal Reserve Bank goes to Wall Street, not to us. That's what happened. Uh, in every economic crisis we've had. Every economic crisis has has preferred corporatism over the individual person. Here's the thing. As people, more often than not, despite evidence to the contrary, we do not get to... Okay, when the Fed goes to help us as individuals. They do it from the wrong end of the equation, trickle-down economics, free market economics, where all of the numbers point to the fact that if you pay people first, then the companies will reap the rewards later. We're seeing that right now. The only reason the US economy is propped up where it is, is because a $600 a week bonus to unemployment claims right now during the COVID financial crisis. Once that expires, Mark my words, there will be another economic downturn. It's going to be in full-blown depression mode. That's the only reason we're not in one right now, is because people have money to spend and they're spending it. That is not going to continue indefinitely. The overwhelming bulk of evidence shows that an unconditional basic income A direct cash stimulus to individual people is the best way to operate an economy. If we can leverage the capital that comes out of the Federal Reserve Bank and manage interest rates and manage banking through that same system, but instead privilege the individual person instead of the corporation, we will have used capitalism for what it's for. But here's the thing. I'm not sure that's even going to be capitalism anymore. I think the name needs to change at that point. But I don't have a good idea for what it's going to be called. So for now, it's just better capitalism. The most economically healthy and humane boosting of the econ- method of boosting the economy is to give individual persons money. And part of that is going to be deciding whether we want to continue to prop this practice of nationhood and uh, citizenship in a nation as part of that process too. Uh, So we need to consider whether giving anybody who is in our borders money is useful, or whether we need to select for citizenship first, uh, and whether that actually helps our economy. I am not sure, because there's no data to back this up, uh, necessarily. And I think it would be highly politically unpalatable. I think even the most sort of liberal um, person in society, thinking of the nation state as we do now, And the arbitrary borders we draw around our countries as having value would probably really kind of just cringe at the idea of giving everybody who walked into the country money for being within the borders. But think about it this way. Many other countries, the United Kingdom, Finland, Japan, all these other countries have subsidized health care. Doesn't matter whether you live there or not whether you're insured or not, the government will pay for your health care so that you can live while you're in that country. Um, What if we did the same thing for just making a living? We subsidize people's ability to live while they're within our borders. Their quality of life and subsequently everyone else's quality of life would drastically improve. This goes from the homeless person on the street whose identity will be hard to verify because they have mental conditions, right down to someone who may have come here illegally 10 years ago on an airplane and not been able to afford a plane ticket back. And so they're hiding so they can't get deported. There are so many different things that we can pretend we're going to fix with law keeping and regulation that would be... Equally easy to fix with money, with the distribution of capital. If we make an investment in people, they will be able to fix their situation way better than telling them what their situation ought to be ever will. So join me next time when I talk about all of the flaws of socialism and why the myth of the worker is detrimental to how we treat each other as individual human beings. Thanks for listening.